Uh, We're going to be back in the Gospel of John today, so grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that looks like this in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be in John chapter 4. So as a little cheat sheet, you can turn to page 944 if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat. 944, also feel free to use if you have your Gospel of John journal. If you don't have, there's just a few more of those left. You could grab this, take this with you to a cohort. If you're not in a cohort, sign up for one of those, either on the website or through that little card uh, near the seat. And uh, we'll talk about, uh, every cohort we talk about the upcoming sermon, so you can discover on your own and then take notes in your journal, bring it, maybe learn a couple new things and then take it back to your cohort and say, wow, I didn't quite see that or that was exactly what I saw. Super exciting. And uh, we'll keep going. So uh, as way of update, Last week, we talked uh, at the end of chapter 3, the last scene we see of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, because he was baptizing in preparation for Jesus' coming. So if you weren't here, we talked about this great, amazing um, realization that John had, that he must decrease so that Jesus would increase. And so we talked about these scales, and, and we talked about how when we put our weight on this scale, when we choose to put our weight on this scale of Jesus, it necessarily lifts Jesus up and, and gives him glory because he is utterly different and the one that should receive all the glory. And when we get the world properly and the scales not are balanced but are actually lopsided and Jesus is high, life is as it should be, the universe is as it should be, and we experience the fullness of things working as they should. And I just wanted to add one point of clarification to that. As I was in my cohort talking uh, and talking to others, um, this this happens all the time. There's more clarity. And I want to just make sure this is clarified and as a way to bring you in. If you weren't here last week, you can always go back and listen to that sermon. But um, it's not simply standing um, autonomously apart from the scale, but and putting stuff on it, because I think that's how a lot of us do Christianity. If this wasn't clear last week, it's literally stepping on the scale yourself with your whole body. It's your, your body's weight that has all the weight. And so to put your life on the scale is what John the Baptist shows us. Another way uh, to say that is to give your story to his story. That, that is what the call of Christ is. Will you give your story to Christ's story? That's what John the Baptist modeled for us. He says, I want to be lost in the story of Christ. And through losing my story to Christ's story, my story lives forever. And so as you're trying to apply last week's sermon to your life, be asking yourself, have you given just things to put on the scale or have you put your whole story on his scale? How could you know that? You could ask different questions. There's so many aspects of your story, but lots of things in your life tell your story. Like your bank accounts tell a story. If I were to look at your bank accounts, I'd see a story. If I were to look at your calendar, I would see a story would would come out. If I looked at your Instagram account, I would see a story would come out. Are all your stories subservient to the story of Christ? That is another way of saying what we said last week. John the Baptist's story is subservient to Christ's story. If, if we took all the data and all the numbers and all the things that we now have in big data and we put it into AI and we told AI, tell, write a story about this person, what story would that 
AI pump out? Would it align with and propel the story of Jesus, or would it be its own unique story? That's the question we talked about last week. And so now this week, we transition from what has been up to this point a bunch of uh, typically religious people. John the baptizer was very religious. He was all about preparing the way through cleansing. We have the story of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a religious elite in Jerusalem. We have Jesus throwing over the tables of the money changers. So it's been a lot of Jewish people, very religious, finding true religion in the true Savior, Jesus. But now the Apostle John, the writer of the gospel, shifts gears. And he shifts gears towards people who would have been seen by the Jews and by religious types as outcasts. Very much worshiping in the wrong way. Very much outside of a definition of what it is to be a person of God. And now we see how Jesus comes to encounter that type of person. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. And we're going to read this week uh, the first 30 verses of this very famous story of the woman at the well. And then next week we're going to stay in that story and read the last 12 verses. So it's John chapter 4, 1 through 42. But we will stop uh, short at verse 30, though I'll reference some of the last verses to show you how the story ends. But before I begin reading, I need to explain to you something that would have been obvious to all of John's original listeners, but that's not obvious to you. You don't understand what a Samaritan is. In fact, when you hear Samaritan, you put the adjective good in front of it, right? Oh, the good Samaritan. So you think, oh, Samaritans are good. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, why the good Samaritan, the story Jesus tells, is so profound is that the word good and Samaritan were never put together by the Jewish people. Never. And so the Samaritans were looked down upon. Five times in the first nine verses, John writes out the word Samaritan in some form. Think he wants to get our attention? Maybe in your cohort you circled that. Why does he keep talking about Samaritan and Samaritan? He wants you to be shocked at the fact that the Samaritans are going to be part of God's story. Hmm. Okay, who are the Samaritans? Well, to understand a little biblical history, a little world history, you have to understand that at one time, the nation of Israel was unified. Uh, this was in the time of King David, sort of the height of the, the man-made kingdom of Israel. And then there was subsequent tension and pulling apart, and eventually the unified nation became two nations. You had the north and the south, the northern kingdom was referred to by the prophets as Israel, and the southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. And it was uh, those in the northern kingdom that um, slipped further and faster away from the true worship of God. And so when we come to talk about Jews in Jesus' day, we're primarily referring to those people who were in the southern kingdom. Now, what happened to the northern kingdom is they were conquered first by the Assyrians. And many of, particularly the elites and the religious leader types, were deported out of um, northern Israel, the northern kingdom. 
And in their place, Assyria sent in colonists from Babylon and Medea and all these neighboring nations to sort of recolonize the northern kingdom. Now what happened is those undeported northern kingdom worshipers began to mix with the colonists and began to worship their gods as well. And so what you had in that area was this amalgamation of all these different kinds of gods. Not just the God of Israel, though they still worshipped Yahweh, but also the gods of the Babylonians and the Medes and all these other um, foreign gods. And so what happened is in the time of when the southern kingdom, they just so you know, eventually get conquered as well uh, because of their own inability to worship God in truth. Um, but before that happened, there was this, this opinion that was formed of these Samaritans, they began to be called as the worst of the worst. Have you ever noticed that? It's the people that are closest to you but get it wrong in the way you think that's most important that you tend to hate the most, right? Not the people that are utterly different than you, but the people that used to be like you, and now they've changed. That's who we tend to withhold our greatest venom towards. Often for good reason, but it is an interesting part of human history. So these Samaritans are not totally different. They still worship Yahweh, but then a lot of other stuff. And what gets indoctrinated into the people of the southern kingdom is that these Samaritans are the worst. They began to truly hate one another. And that is all important when we're reading this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You couldn't imagine how to Jewish ears when the first time John the, the writer uses Samaritan, wait, what? Samaritan? I hope this doesn't go the way I think it goes, always with Jesus. But sure enough, we'll see it does. And so we need to hear that when we hear these words. Okay, the other thing I want you to listen to, listen for, is to listen for the humanity of Jesus. He's thirsty, he gets weary, and so he comes to this well. Jesus is fully God, God in the flesh. John's made that very clear in chapter 1. The Word became flesh. God, the Creator, became enfleshed and walked among us as a human being. So he's fully God, but he's also fully human. So he's subject to weariness, thirst, hunger, all of these things. And then the third thing I want you to just be, pay attention to is the geography matters. The history matters. Jesus' actions always happen in a real place, in a real time in history, and all of that matters. Jesus is not just an idea. He was a man who walked in space-time history. And so he also walks into this biblical story that God's been writing from Genesis on. And that will become clear, particularly in this continued reference to Jacob's well. So who's Jacob, in case you don't know who Jacob is? Jacob is the one whose name gets changed by God to Israel after he wrestles with God. So Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And so Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah being one of the tribes. And so Jacob's a big deal. And this is Jacob's well. This well 
which was so famous and important to both the Jews and to the Samaritans. So important to both groups of people. And yet, this is what always what Jesus does. What we'll see is he now takes this thing that was famous for one reason, and he's going to make it famous for a whole new reason, so that the whole world now thinks that Jacob's well is a very important place. I love how Jesus does that. Okay, so the Jews think it's important. The Samaritans think it's important. Now guess who thinks it's important? Us. 2,000 years later. Why? Because Jesus attached himself to that place. That well now became part of Jesus' story. That well is now surrendered and subservient to Jesus' story, even more than Jacob's. Because you wouldn't have known about Jacob unless I told you. (laughs) Even if you were a Jew or Samaritan, you probably wouldn't understand. But Jesus makes it ultimately famous. So, you ready to read? (laughs) A lot of intro there. John chapter 4, verse 1 says this. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the baptizer, we read about that last week, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. So he's in sort of the area surrounding Jerusalem, which is like the center of worship for the Jews. He hears that the Pharisees are getting a little concerned about him because he's gaining popularity and he says i need to now move my ministry north to galilee now i want you to circle if you've got your journal circle the word left that can also be translated abandoned this will be important you'll see the word left two more times in this story he left or abandoned judea so these religious types are starting to get worked up and they want to get rid of them. And so he leaves them, abandons them for a time. He'll come back, but he abandons them for a time to go to Galilee. Verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. It's a very interesting way to say it. He could have said he traveled through Samaria. He had to. Two ways of seeing this. There's no way to get to Galilee without going through Samaria unless you go way around, so it'd take much longer. So in a sense, John could be saying he had to. I think there's more to it. He had to. I think this is because it was the will of his Father, God the Father, that he go through because what, is his, what, what was he sent for? John 3.16 says, to save all the world. Not just the Jews, but also those Samaritans. He had to travel through. The will of God compelled him to go this particular way. Verse 5. So, he's walking through this region called Samaria, and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property of Jacob. Sorry, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out, there's the humanity, from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So the heat of the day, it was about noon. Circle noon, that's an important detail that John gives us. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus asked her. Why did he ask her? Verse 8 tells us. Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is there alone. A woman who is a Samaritan, comes up to him. 
this is important that it's a woman because in the rabbinic teaching, rabbis weren't allowed to interact with women one-on-one, let alone a Samaritan woman who was seen, and there's rabbinic texts that talk about they are the most to be avoided. So if you're from this time and you were hearing this, you'd have been like, whoa, this is a big deal. He asks her for water. She says this, verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So she gets it. She's like, this is already strange, this encounter. John gives us this little note, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which I'd already told you. Okay. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Okay. So what we're going to see over and over again is some of this stuff's going over her head. And it would go over your head too. So don't be hard on her. What do you mean, living water? I mean, Nicodemus didn't understand half of what Jesus was saying. Okay? So, the first thing, I want to make this very clear before everyone falls asleep. The good news of Jesus is this. That Jesus came not just for the Jews. Not just for the religious or moral, morally upright people or people that tried really hard to be nice. And not just for people searching for salvation, like those who are coming to John the Baptist. Jesus came for all people, particularly the sick, the thirsty, the hungry, the weary, the lost. And he'll make very clear in this conversation as it goes on that he's not specifically talking about physical things, but spiritual things. Now, she doesn't understand that right away, and that's okay. And you might not understand that right away, and that's okay. But eventually, you need to hear deeply what Jesus is saying to you, is that you're thirsty in a way that you don't even realize how thirsty you are. You're hungry in a way you don't even realize how hungry you are. You're lost in a way you don't even realize how lost you are. And Jesus will enter your story to take hold of your story, and then you'll have a chance to surrender your story to him. I mean, just think about this. She's coming to this well every single day. She's not searching for eternal life or living water or spiritual things. She's just trying to survive. And then Jesus interacts almost you could say accidentally but we know that he had to go this way so it's not accidental from God's perspective from her perspective she's just living in an ordinary life and then all of a sudden boom Jesus intersects and she has a decision to make who is this man I don't want you to miss the beauty of this part of the story because it's some of your stories you were just going about your business living your ordinary life, and then something intersected. And now you're in this conversation considering who is this man. 
And what in the world is he talking about? So beautiful. Okay. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus answered, If you knew, if you only knew who it is that you're talking to, if you only knew, and she's like, This guy's strange. If you only knew who you were talking to, he's going to say two things the who and the what. So I'll start with the who. If you only knew, if you only knew who intersected your story. So Jesus is basically saying, you're going to be more surprised. (laughs) You're going to be more shocked than you could ever imagine by the end of this conversation. Spoiler alert, Jesus is always right. She's more surprised. So, like, watch the progression of how she goes. Because I think this is how our progression goes lots of times. First, probably from far off, she sees that there's a man standing at the well. Well, that's interesting. The well was often a place where the woman of the, of the, the village would go to draw water. So it's very unusual that a man's there, but she sees a man there. Okay, so at first she sees a man. Then she gets there and how Jesus was dressed and how, probably how his beard was cut and, you know... She could just tell. He's a Jew. So, went from just a man, now he's a Jewish man. And then the progression is going to go like this. She realized he's he's clearly a teacher, a spiritual teacher. Okay, and then what's going to happen is then she's like, oh wow, you're a prophet. Okay, and then she's going to say, I think you might be the Messiah, the Christ. The long-awaited, for both Jews and Samaritans, savior of the, uh, of the people. Then, when we get, now turn to me, spoiler alert, all the way to the end of the story, verse 42, which we won't get to, we won't get to that last part, but we'll get more into it next week. Look at what the final realization is. The townspeople, because of her testimony, are going to come, and they're going to interact with Jesus And they're going to say this, we no longer believe because of what you said, talking about this woman, since we have heard ourselves and know that this this really is the Savior of the world. So this is the progression of the story. A man, a Jewish man, a Jewish spiritual teacher, a Jewish spiritual teacher who has prophetic gifts and can know things only because God has told him these things, a Jewish male spiritual teacher who's a prophet who might just be the Messiah we've all been waiting for to this is the Savior of the world. See that progression? This is very similar to the progression you might go through in your life. Okay? You might think Jesus is one thing now, But the more time you spend talking to him, the more you'll realize he's something even more. And you think that's the end of it, and then you realize, oh, it's even more. And you think that's the end of it, you realize it more. And actually, this will happen even after you say, this is the savior of the world. Because then you'll you'll say, but he couldn't save me from this thing or that thing. And then he will. So always throughout your life, there's a a continuing, progressing revelation of who Jesus is and, and what he can do and what he has power over. So that's if you only knew who. Now, what about the 
the what? If you only knew what? Jesus says, if you only knew the gift of God. What's this gift? He'll go on to say, if you had asked me, I could have given you living water. So the gift is living water. Now, what is he talking about? This isn't the first time in Scripture that living water is used. Throw it up on the screen here, Chris. Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah says, For my people, hundreds of years before Jesus came, have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. So God refers to himself as the fountain of living water. Then, then God goes on to say, And they dug cisterns for themselves. Crack cisterns because they cannot hold living water. It's basically what he's saying. So there is this imagery that Jesus is, is fulfilling, that God is the living water, and that we always try to set up for ourselves our own wells or our own cisterns to hold water, but they're cracked and they always leak and they always run out. So Jesus is saying, I'm a new kind of cistern. And I give a different kind of water. Then in the book of Revelation, the same author of the Gospel of John writes this. The same imagery. He says this. Looking into heaven, the the new heavens and the new earth to come. says they will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them. Nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb, and that's been a key theme we've been talking about, who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to, look at it, springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay, one more. Revelation 21.6 says this. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty. From where? The spring of the water of life. So this is a picture in the new heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and the earth, this fountain of life that's never going away. I just love that. Jesus is saying the gift of God is eternal life. The springs of water that bring life. Water equals life. And Jesus is saying this water is the kind of water that you know not of. And this kind of water is your salvation. You see it? So the who, Jesus is the Savior. The what? The gift of living water. So those who are with Jesus, in Jesus, are filled with Jesus, will actually have springs of living water within them. That is the promise of the Bible. This is the promise of God. It always has been the promise of God. And it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And he's saying he is the living water. He's the gift. He's the gift. He is the water. And it never runs dry. It never fails to accomplish what it's meant to accomplish, which is life everlasting. If you only knew... You only knew. Okay, so she clearly is going to get this, right? No, of course, we never get it the first time. It's okay. It's okay if, it's, if you don't get it the first time. Verse 11. Sir, 
said the woman. You don't even have a bucket. <laughs> you should laugh at this. This is funny. John's being, this is funny. This is what we do. Well, Jesus, you don't even have a bucket. How can you save me? How can you give me water? This doesn't make any sense. You don't even have a bucket. And the well is very deep. So where do you get this living water? Then she says, verse 12, You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself. And so did his sons and his livestock. What's she saying? She's being a little cheeky too, which I love. She's like, okay, Jesus, great. You don't even have a bucket. And you think you're better than Jacob, our common father? You see how she, she realizes the Jews and the Samaritans are ultimately related? Our father Jacob, are you saying this water was good enough for him, but it's not good enough for you? Whoa, who do you think you are? Exactly. She doesn't quite get it yet. Jesus said to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks from this water, it's pointing down the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give, they will never get thirsty again. Wow. In fact, Jesus says, did you know the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, she couldn't know all of the, the, the teaching he would do about the Holy Spirit will come and indwell you and be that living water within you. That's the promise. He's going to get to it in just a sec, that we worship in spirit and in truth. But she couldn't get it. All, all he's saying is, God, he's saying, ma'am, miss, like you don't realize how thirsty you are and if, if, if you had the kind of water that I want to give to you, it, you would be quenched in a way you, you couldn't even imagine. I just love this. One of the first papers I ever wrote in seminary. I've been doing strange things from the beginning, like strange analogies and illustrations. The first paper I ever wrote, I'm sure my professor was like, what are you writing about Ponce de Leon for? I wrote a paper about Ponce de Leon. You know Ponce de Leon, the great adventurer, conquistador, who discovered Florida, and as the myth goes, he was sort of looking for the fountain of youth. I love, I love that idea of the fountain of youth, because we're all kind of looking for it in, in one way or another, whether, whether it's through, uh, you know, medicine or pharmaceuticals, whether it's, it's through cosmetics, whether it's through... Um, just extending our life in whatever way. Everyone's searching for the fountain of youth. Jesus has been saying that. I am the fountain of youth. If you're looking for the fountain of youth, Jesus says, consider me. I am the fountain. Okay. So now it's clear, right? No, it's not clear. So we can't get mad at her, but she clearly doesn't get it. She clearly still doesn't realize we're talking about spiritual things. She still thinks we're talking about physical things. So, verse 15. Sir, said the woman, give me this water so that... Okay, you're thinking she might, maybe she got it. So that she can have eternal life. She says, so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here to draw water. 
You see, she's still thinking physical, temporal. I don't want to have to walk. It's a long walk from the village. It's hot in the middle of the day. I don't want to have to do this anymore. Give me some of this water that never runs dry. Okay, so she still doesn't quite get it, and that's still okay. But now Jesus is going to do something out of love. When I read it, you're going to think it's kind of mean or lacks compassion. But I want you to know it's love. He, he's not getting through to her. She's, he's not under, she's not understanding what he's really talking about. And so he has to clarify it to her. And so I'm going to read verse 16. And it's going to feel harsh. And I'm going to tell you it's not harsh. I also want to tell you, because I want to keep it light, I want to tell you that to understand what he's about to say, you need to understand a classic scene from my favorite movie, Wayne's World. And I know this is, some of you are young and you don't know, it's okay. It's classic Americana, even though it's a Canadian actor, Mike Myers. In Wayne's World, Wayne is dating a girl named Stacy. And Stacy also struggles to get things. And, and everybody knows Wayne shouldn't be dating Stacy. And Stacy, it's his birthday, and she brings him a gift, and he unwraps the gift. You can tell you're not Wayne's World fans because you'd be laughing already. And he unwraps the gift, and it's a gun rack. And, and Wayne says to Stacy, what am I going to do with a gun rack? He says, I don't even own a gun, let alone enough guns to necessitate an entire rack. What am I going to do with a gun rack? <laughs> okay. So, so, you need to hear that. Later, his buddy Garth will say, call Stacy mental. <laughs> okay, so, great movie. You've got to watch it. So, what am I going to do with a gun rack? I don't even own a gun. Okay, verse 16. This is out of love. Jesus changes the conversation a bit, but not really. Verse 16. Jesus told her, Go, call your husband and come back here. Okay. Verse 17. She says, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Jesus replies, You have spoken correctly. When you said, I don't have a husband. Four, verse 18. You've had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not your husband. You're living with him but not married to him. So what you have said is true. When we read that, we say, whoa, he brought up her sin? He's just talking about living water. It's all very positive. And now he brings up her sin and says, yeah, you don't have a husband because you have five husbands. And the man you're living with isn't even your husband. Whoa. Is this mean? Is this a lack of compassion? I don't think so. I think it's love. And it's love in part because of Zechariah 13.1, another prophet who says this. Throw that up, Chris. Ooh. 
on that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to, to do what? To wash away sin and impurity. The living water not only gives life, but it gives life because it washes away sin and impurity. And she hasn't been understanding to this point that they're talking about spiritual things. And so in love, he needs her to know that what he's actually saying is that he's here to quench a thirst that she doesn't even talk about anymore. It's too deep. It's too painful. She knows what she's done. She knows that she's had five husbands. She knows, and Jesus knows probably, that these men treated her improperly too. But he's here to save her. And so he wants her to know that this water cleanses from sin and impurity. This is love for Jesus to help us understand what we're talking about. We're not just talking about physical things, physical thirst. We're talking about spiritual thirst. We're talking about the removal of that true guilt that sits on our soul and clogs our spiritual arteries. He wants to remove it He wants life to flow again as it should, and it can't if we don't take care of that sin. He is that fountain of true life. This is love. This is so important to this story because it kind of hits you weird when you're reading it. I don't know if in your cohorts when you read it, you're like, that's weird that he brings that up. But but hear hear me when I say this. It was her sin that led her here. Without her sin, she wouldn't have met Jesus. How do I know that? This is where that I had I said circle noon. Why, if you're a woman of the village, would you walk all the way to the well and carry all that weight of the water back at noon in a desert climate? Why? The answer is it's the only time you could go. Why is it the only time you could go? Because the rest of the women want nothing to do with you. They shun you. Why? Because of your sin. Because you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. The whole reason she's there at that time of day to meet her Savior is because of her sin. And so, if you've ever heard somebody say, hate your sin, I want you to hear it Hate it in this way only, that it's something you want to avoid moving forward. Embrace your sin. What? I've never heard a pastor say that. Embrace your sin only in this way. Recognizing that it's that which led you to Jesus. Jesus only comes to save sinners. You will only meet Jesus if you acknowledge your sin. If you deny your sin, it's like locking the door and Jesus can't come in. This woman's sin literally led her to meet before almost anybody else the Savior of the world. And he's saying, embrace your sin. Acknowledge it. I know all about it. And I love you still. That's the message of God. 
Turn from it, yes, but acknowledge that you need me to fix this problem. So for those of us who are in the habit of downplaying our sin, who are in the habit of missing an opportunity for deeper intimacy with Jesus because we just won't acknowledge our sin, this is a story for us. Jesus wants to draw you out of that self-denial. He wants to draw you out of that hiding place so that you can experience life with him at the well. Let your sin draw you to Jesus. Understand that you need him. And you need him not just once, every day you need him. There is sin in all of our lives, each and every day. Open up to him. Of course this doesn't mean sin as much as you can so that you can get more of Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But open up about the sin you already have. You have plenty of sin. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to go find some more. You've already got plenty. Just acknowledge it. Bring it to Jesus. Ask God for forgiveness. And the living water begins to flow and cleanse you of that. And you'll experience the life of that living water again and again and again. Whether it's the first time and you've never acknowledged it, or it's the one millionth time like me, and you have to acknowledge again. Jesus, I need you. So it's love that Jesus brings up her sin. But does she receive it that way? Let's look. Verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, what's coming next? She says, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) So she doesn't receive it as mean or uncompassionate because she's like, you're right. And you see something that you could only see if God revealed it to you. You must be a proper prophet. Then she goes on and she realizes now, okay, we're having a bigger conversation. I get it, Jesus. The living water. We're having a spiritual conversation, not just a physical conversation. I get it. And she begins now to move in the direction of the new conversation. But she still doesn't understand fully who he is. Verse 20, she says, Our, san- our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that this pla- the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So what you have to understand here is that the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim when, that, when the kingdom split and the northern uh, Israelites couldn't go to Jerusalem to worship. They created their own place of worship. And they thought that this place was the place where Abraham had brought Isaac in that impactful text in Genesis. They also thought it was where Abraham had met Melchizedek. Uh, and they only read the Torah. They didn't read the prophets because the prophets were always talking bad about them. So, so they only read the Torah. And so like, the place to worship is Mount Gerizim. And the Jews said, no, the place to worship is Jerusalem on Mount Zion. That's the place where the prophets clearly say is where the house of God is. Okay, so this is, she's bringing up this big spiritual conversation or debate. Jesus gets that. Verse 21, Jesus told her, believe me. Interesting way to say it. Believe me. And then he goes on to say some things. But don't miss, believe me is imperative. He's sort of giving her a hint. Believe me. Don't believe Mount Gerizim. Don't believe Mount Zion. Believe me. It's not about debating where we worship. It's about debating who I am. Believe me, he says. There's lots of ways John could have written that, and he's writing it very specifically to say, believe in me. And then he goes on to say this. Miss, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, what does he mean by from the Jews? Here's what he means. He's not saying that um, salvation is in the Jews or to the Jews, but from the Jews. Jesus is saying, I am Jewish. I am salvation. It's from the Jews. Again, these are new things that, she, that would be totally new to her. He says this, it's from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. She's never heard anything like this before. She can see he's a prophet. He's not just a man. He's not just a Jew. He's not just a religious teacher. He's a prophet. And then he teaches something totally new. Jesus is saying, I'm even more than just a prophet. Some of you are stuck here. Some of you can clearly see that Jesus is a very spiritually important man, maybe an extraordinarily insightful religious teacher. Maybe you even will concede that he's a proper prophet. But you get stuck there. So how does Jesus convince this woman, because that's where she's stuck, to believe in him, to believe me? How does he do it? How does he do it? That he is the Christ, the Messiah, and then eventually the Savior of the world, which includes Jews and Samaritans and Greeks and even Americans. Wow. How does he do it? How does he do it? Oh, I just don't have enough time, but i got to do it. Technical difficulties. Blame it on the technical difficulties. That's always a good way. Technical difficulties early in the service, so I'm going to be a little bit late. But i got to tell you these two, because this is it. How does it click? How does he do it? Because some of us are stuck there. Okay, he's a prophet, prophet, but I want to know, is he more? How does he do it? This is how he does it. Look at verse 27 to 30. Let's read it. 20, or actually, 25 to 30. We'll read the whole thing. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking, the one explaining to you, am he. Just then the disciples arrived. These guys who were off getting food. This is just so funny. They're so awkward. I want you to see that. The disciples are always, their timing always seems off. They're always missing it. They're awkward. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be awkward. It's okay. They arrive. They're having this amazing moment. They arrive. They see her talking with a woman, yet no one says anything. <laughs> they just stare at her awkwardly. They don't say, what do you want to the woman? And they don't say, why are you talking with her, Jesus? It does seem like they just sit there and look awkwardly at her. Like, what's going on? Because they know this is strange. And then look what happens. The woman sees them being awkward. And the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people. The people who wouldn't have anything to do with her. You need to remember that. They wouldn't even let her be, come to the well when everybody else was there. She goes to them and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
They left the town and made their way to him. Okay. What happened? Jesus says some strange things about worshiping in spirit and in truth, and not on this mountain, not on that mountain. She clearly doesn't yet know he's the Messiah, and she says to Jesus, hey, the Messiah's going to come, and he'll explain everything, because what you just said didn't make any sense. <laughs> so he's coming. Jesus says, I'm he. The disciples awkwardly show up, look at her, aghast that he's talking to a woman, and then she sets her jar down, that word left, she abandons her jar, she abandons the thing that brings physical, uh, quenches physical thirst, she abandons it. There ain't no target down the road, she can't buy a new one, she just leaves it there, runs into town, tells everybody that won't normally talk to her about this guy who might be the Messiah, and they all come. What happened? What clicked? Whoa. It wasn't just that Jesus prophesied or could see that she had had five husbands. That is not what's going on. Something else happened. And I think the key is when she says, I know the Messiah is coming, who is the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything. And Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking, the one explaining, the one that just explained these things about the mountains, am he. And then she sees the disciples see what's going on. Something, all of that together, it clicks. I think two things are happening. The first is this. When the disciples see that he's talking to a woman, she realizes. She's sort of been lost in this conversation, but she realizes how strange this is because she sees their faces. And she's like, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan, and she knows what the disciples don't know. She has a reputation as a very sinful woman. And this spiritual teacher is talking to her and has been talking to her for some time and is willing to risk his reputation by being seen by his disciples. Like maybe when they were one-on-one, she was kind of like, I know some shady guys, and, and maybe that's why he's talking to me. But as soon as the disciples come and Jesus doesn't like separate himself and run away, she knows something's different about this guy. This guy is strange. This, this guy is not a slave to anyone else. He is not a slave to cultural norms. He's not a slave to religious norms. He's not a slave to social norms. And he's willing to risk his reputation to speak with her. This guy's different. He seems to beat to his own drum. It doesn't seem like anyone owns him. Who could this be? Like, that's where we don't get it because we, this is the air we breathe, right? That everyone has value, everyone's worth a conversation, but in that day, like, when she sees the disciples see Jesus and, and they're, like, speechless that it's even happening, she realizes, oh my gosh, this is so strange. Who is this guy who knows my sin and yet doesn't feel tainted by being with me? Who could it be? So that's the first consideration. The second is this. How do I explain the explanations? Jesus has said some new teaching that she's never, ever heard before about people worshiping in spirit and in truth and saying, believe in me. And she's thinking, this is so out there, these explanations. But then she realizes the Messiah said, that God said the Messiah would come and it would explain everything. So she has to explain the explanations. You see this? 
Because Jesus is saying something that is totally new and yet doesn't seem crazy. So he's either the Messiah, because he's going to come and explain everything, or he's a lunatic. But it doesn't seem crazy. It's out there, but it doesn't feel untrue. This is the principle. Just because something has always been said for as long as you can remember, that doesn't make it true. When the Word speaks, when the one who was with God and became flesh speaks, that's what makes it true. So she's like, I've I've never heard this. I've always heard it this other way. I've always heard you had to worship at a physical temple. But he says, no, God is spirit. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, why, why is spirit trapped in a building? Yeah, okay, that's true. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus is explaining everything, and she knew the Messiah would explain everything, and she says, oh my goodness, this might be the Messiah. Who else has that authority? Who else could teach new teachings that are true? Oh my goodness, and I, I want you to see it. So she leaves everything, abandons probably one of the only things of value, her water jar that she has, and runs in and tells everybody and proclaims, the Messiah said he was going to come and explain, and I met somebody who came and explained, and he knew everything about me, and he's true, I think. And I love that. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This is true belief. This is true belief. You might be like, why, did, why, why didn't John write, he told me everything I did, this is the Messiah. It never works like that. It always starts with, could this be the Messiah? So true belief, by the way, is being sure enough to abandon your old ways to try the new ways Jesus prescribes. And then proclaim that it's probably true. Well, That doesn't seem definitive enough. We have it right here. God says, this is true belief. I'm elevating this woman's story because she believed enough to leave the old ways behind, go and tell people that she might have met the Messiah. They, of course, come. They, of course, realize that only the author of the story can tell us what the story's about. The Word became flesh. And so when the people come and they hear for themselves everything that Jesus is teaching, it says he stayed for two days. They come to realize it's true. So turn with me back to the end of the story, and then we'll get the in-between, because the in-between is really strange. But turn with me to verse 42. Many of the Samaritans come out of the town. Many of them come to believe because of her testimony. And they say, we no longer believe because of what you said, your testimony only, but because we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. And Genesis 12, 3, this great promise that all nations will be blessed out of the nation of Israel, out of the Jewish people, because from them comes the Messiah, is fulfilled. The reality is he's the Savior of the world. They hear the author explaining the story about what all of history is about, and they come to see it's true. Salvation is from the Jews, because Jesus is from the Jews. But salvation is for every person who puts their trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the well. The woman came to a well 
to get physical water to quench physical thirst. And she met the well of eternal life, whose name is Jesus. And she left, abandoning her old life and stepping into a new life of living water where she's cleansed from her sin and she'll live in unity with her God forever. This is good news for all. Let's pray.